This is History Talk, the podcast where we explore what's really going on behind the news. I'm your host, Patrick Payandi. International free trade, and along with it, the movement of what are called American jobs overseas, have featured heavily in the presidential election of 2016. The label deindustrialization has even been thrown around to highlight what has happened to places like Detroit, Michigan, Youngstown, Ohio, and Gary, Indiana. At the same time, issues of race and nationalism seem to constantly swirl along with these economic processes. The movement of jobs from one place to the next and the effects that movement creates are not new, however. On today's episode, we interview historian Jefferson Cowie, who holds the James G. Stallman Chair in the Department of History at Vanderbilt University. He is the author most recently of the book, The Great Exception, The New Deal and the Limits of American Politics from Princeton University Press. Let me first start with this idea of the great exception, leading from the late 30s and early 1940s up through the early 70s. Union density goes up, and then it goes down. Inequality goes down, then it goes up. Wages go uh, up, and then they go down. So it's it's really this, this exceptional period, I'm arguing. He's also authored the books Capital Moves, RCA's 70-year quest for cheap labor, and Staying Alive, the 1970s and the last days of the working class. During this presidential race, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders in particular proclaimed similarly staunch opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership Free Trade Deal, or TPP, that is one of President Barack Obama's key programs. Hillary Clinton, originally fully supportive of the TPP, has been pushed by her party to qualify her position. Presidential candidates have been trying to leverage some type of opposition to international free trade, which they blame for the loss of American manufacturing and thus the decline of many U.S. cities. For example, in March 2016, Bernie Sanders tweeted, quote, The people of Detroit know the real cost of Hillary Clinton's free trade policies and claimed that, quote, 43,000 Michiganders lost their jobs due to NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, a deal that came into being through broad bipartisan support in the 1990s, but which is now being pilloried on the campaign trail. In July, Donald Trump tweeted, quote, To all the Bernie voters who want to stop bad trade deals and global special interests, we welcome you with open arms. Perhaps sensing an opportunity with many anxious Americans, Trump has also entwined nationalistic and racialized rhetoric in his professed answers to the challenges facing the United States. Our guest today, Jefferson Cowie, unpacks all of this to help us understand our political moment. When I go to the heartland and I talk to people, they just hold out NAFTA as the worst thing that ever happened in the world. And that's why that political rhetoric resonates so strongly. Even though I think the process was well underway beforehand and it continued afterwards, and it may have more to do with China now than Mexico. We discuss the political and economic shift he calls the Great Exception, define the process deindustrialization, explore the role of populism in American change, question the influence of labor unions, and explore why he sees similarities between the 1970s and today. We've got a jam-packed interview for you today, so stay tuned to History Talk. Jefferson Cowie, welcome to History Talk. Political candidates of all stripes really seem to look back to some kind of idealized economic past. Um, We hear a lot of this in the rhetoric of the current presidential candidates, for example, right? But the reality here is a lot more complicated than they make out. So to start, I'd like to begin with your newest book titled The Great Exception, The New Deal and the Limits of American Politics, which I think can really help us understand the foundation of that idealized past that they're talking about. 
what were the core characteristics of the New Deal? And then maybe introduce us to what you mean by this, quote-unquote, great exception. Well, there's a, there's a lot going on to, to, during this period to really boil it down quickly. But Definitely. But the shortest version would be this period in which a large number of working people were economically and politically incorporated into American life. You had a set of economic rights through the Fair Labor Standards Act, Social Security, um, and the National Labor Relations Act. And you had a party that was the Democratic Party that was explicitly making a pitch for the economic interests of of working people. Led by Franklin Roosevelt, right? Franklin Roosevelt, then on through Truman, Johnson, uh, Kennedy, and and Johnson. And then it begins to fall apart. And I think that's, that's the short version. But when people talk about it as sort of the glory days, we have to be careful because it was specifically the enfranchisement of white male industrial workers. Okay. And, and what do you mean by that? Who, did, it, did some of these programs leave out other groups? Sometimes explicitly, um, as in the case of uh, um, many of the New Deal programs, in order to get them passed, they had to um, exclude uh, occupations that were dominated by African Americans, such as agricultural work and, and service and domestic work. The reason being they needed to win the South, the, the, the solid South, the white uh, Dixiecrats, as they would be called later. And to do that, they had to exclude African Americans. And that was part of the package, right? And that's one of the reasons I see it as a very weak package, um, because you ha- it was based on, on exclusion. And, and was that part of this kind of uh, great exception idea, kind of uh, if we're going to put this kind of in a broader, even broader context of a larger American history, um, what part of this kind of constitutes that great exception side of, of your book here? Right. So let me first start with this idea of the great exception. If you, if you look at, as I have in the book, uh, a few graphs of uh, economic uh, uh, indicators of the post-war era, you see this really surprising uh, hump or trough leading from the late 30s and 19, early 1940s up through the early 70s. Union density goes up, and then it goes down. Inequality goes down, then it goes up. Wages go uh, up, and then they go down. Uh, the the amount of wealth uh, the top 1% uh, gets goes uh, dramatically down, then goes way back up. So it's it's really this this exceptional period, I'm arguing. Um, now, what went into that? If you want to be a reductionist, you could say it was just, you know, uh, the economic boom. But there's been plenty of economic booms in world history. And the, so my question is, why was this one shared uh, better than most? Now, I'm, again, we just made clear that uh, black people were left out for the most part. Right. Um, so when I say shared, I'm not talking about um, some sort of... Uh, you know, social democratic paradise. Right, yeah, everyone equally or something like that. Right, exactly. It just means that when the state looked at a question, it wasn't just what's good for business, it was also what's good for working people. Um, And then, so how does this graph, how does the question of race map onto that great exception? Well, in order for that to get passed, we had to exclude African Americans. And then when it falls apart in the late 60s and early 70s, one of the key drivers of politics becomes race. Okay, so, so that, you, that racial question lingers then, and, and you're saying it's going to be kind of one of the key characteristics for how this kind of New Deal sort of 
type of government is going to kind of fall apart? Exactly. Okay. Right. Yeah. So you have to basically, in order for the, in order for like what this, uh, what Richard Hofstetter called a, a, a social democratic tinge to come to American politics, mm-hmm. to suspend this core variable in American politics, race relations. And you see that really as kind of the, the maybe the key variable, would you say? I, I, you know, the interesting thing is the degree to which it really required a whole set of things coming together. Okay. Um, and uh, I think perhaps the easiest to grasp for most people is immigration. Uh, uh, the question of immigration is animating politics today in a very, you know, virulent way, I think. And it did in the end of the 19th century as well, all through the first decades of the 20th century. But then in 1924, we shut down immigration. So when the economic crisis of the New Deal hit, we actually, uh, there weren't large numbers of, of immigrants in this country. Uh, there, there were some who had only been here for 10, 20 years, um, but for the most part, most of them had been here for at least 20. So it was a very different political moment, and, and I really want to emphasize the politics of this. So you have a culture of unity that emerges from these things, but that culture of unity is based on exclusion. We don't have immigrants. We're excluding African Americans. So it's like a double-edged sword. On the one hand, we're sharing the, the wealth of the nation better than ever. On the other hand, the politics of that sharing is based on the exclusion of some of these key things, some of these key people. Right, yeah, so sharing for some and maybe not all. And I kind of wanted to ask you also about, um, you know, this idea of populism here and the great exception. It's, it's, this is a word, you know, populism that's been thrown around a lot in this presidential cycle. Um, and, it, you know, it seems to be something that, uh, you know, the Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders camps shared in common. Um, and so would you agree and do you think populism played a role in creating or destroying this great exception? Well, yeah, I do. Um, it's, it's again, it's, it's sort of subtle. I think populism uh, should come as no surprise to people. I, I, I think it's it's the dominant uh, political voice of change in American history. Oh, and has been for a long time. Um, and you know, I think you know. Uh, th- well, there's there's two ways of defining populism. Of course, one is the narrow definition of the agrarian populist movement of the late 19th century. And if if you if you use that as a capital P populism, then what I'm going to say isn't going to resonate. But I'm more with Michael Kazin on this. That there's this broad discourse in American politics that goes from Andrew Jackson all the way up to all the way up to Trump. Right, more of a style or rhetoric, maybe. Exactly. Okay. Right. Right. That that posits the virtue of the people against the corrupt interests, and it tends to be very mushy, and it looks to a restoration of the past, golden age, rather than uh, uh, some sort of technocratic future. Um, it's suspicious of elites. It sees the virtue of the common man in some way. Tends not to be very specific on questions of class, at, uh, qua class, um, but more the people. And so so you see this, you know, really running through um, American history. In the 1930s, Roosevelt isn't really he's very very popular but he's not really a populist he's okay. running against populists like Huey Long and Father Coughlin and these guys um and is able to defeat them and but he's able to do it with very specific 
technical legislation that does the trick. It's not sort of this, you know, Donald Trump, we're going to, you know, we have these crazy plans, we do these crazy things. No, it's like, okay, here is, here's the National Labor Relations Act. But more kind of specific policy president. sets then. Exactly. More right. answers to specific problems. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, and so, and, oh, no, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say, so the interesting thing about this is, you actually see a muted populism is fairly muted, I think, in the post-war period. You have McCarthyism okay. uh, and everything, but then you know who's the populist figure uh, that that reemerges? It's George Wallace, right? In '68, really '64, '68, and '72 in particular, that that the New Deal system begins to crumble around, and because he begins to sort of unleash that old populist energy, unleash the questions of race uh, and other issues that I talk about. And so I want to move us along onto um, some other major issues here that, that I think are related. And so again, you know, during this presidential election cycle here, Trump and Sanders had other things in common, right? Um, and I'm thinking particularly when it comes to attacking free trade agreements. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so sometimes in different ways, right, they both claim that deals like the North American Free Trade Agreement or NAFTA of the 1990s and the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, but also places like China were taking away American jobs. Um, and then even Hillary Clinton here, who uh, has been for TPP um, and is now kind of adopting more of a Sanders stance here, has sort of changed her position a bit. But political candidates have also then thrown around this label, quote, deindustrialization. Um, when we're talking kind of both about free trade, but also places like Detroit, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so as politicians are kind of want to do, they make this all sound really simple and also kind of a mm -hmm. recent process. Um, and so I'm wondering, though, if you can kind of help us define this term, deindustrialization. Um, on one level, it's a process, right? But what has characterized that process? Can you kind of help us understand this term? Yeah, I wonder, you know, I think this is a great question, Patrick. Um, and because I think it, it opens up uh, an even more complicated set of questions, which is, is this still a valuable term? Okay, um, great. Because it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I've written a lot using that term, but I began to think maybe it's time to, to move on. But here's the deal. Um, the first sort of use of this is actually uh, after, uh, during World War II when uh, Nazi-occupying forces would de-industrialize um, uh, conquered cities. They would strip it of its industrial power. Mm -hmm. Um and then, but but really, we don't we really don't begin to see this term invoked until the 1980s, late 70s, a little bit, and then the 1980s. And then it was synonymous with core basic industry, steel primarily, some auto, uh, other some chemicals, some oil, some things like that. But really, it was it was when the steel mills started going down 78 through uh, the early 80s, and and then, um, you know, there's a big fight against shutdowns and these sorts of things. But um, it's, it is an ongoing process that we see, you know, there's these dramatic moments, say, when they're blowing up a, uh, you know, a steel mill that looks like it defines it forever in, you know, uh, someplace in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. But really what we're seeing is a much quieter process that's going on uh, really, uh, throughout the 20th century, of the movement of industry, of, say, the textile industry moved from New England to the American South uh, in the first part of the 20th century up into the 1920s. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so in capital is immobile forever. 
but we don't really see, begin to see the, the the massive impact on a broad scale uh, until the 80s and 90s. And then when NAFTA is passed under under Clinton in 93, implemented in 94, that creates this symbolic moment, the symbolic weight in which the Democratic Party has sort of codified globalization, uh, the moving of jobs over abroad, specifically to Mexico in this case. But it becomes a political symbol. And when I go to the heartland and I talk to people, they just hold out NAFTA as the worst thing that ever happened in the world. And that's why that political rhetoric resonates so strongly uh, with you know, the Trump campaign and others and, and Sanders. Um, even though I think the process was well underway beforehand it, and it's continued afterwards and it may have more to do with China than now than Mexico, but NAFTA is such a... It, it, it's a political moment where they, a lot of people felt like, okay, the elites don't care about us anymore. Mm-hmm. Do you think part of that was because, uh, you know, by the 90s, right, you said, uh, you know, the Democratic Bill Clinton administration is is who ultimately signs this into law. Is it because both Democrats and Republicans are now kind of backing the, these sort of free trade deals that, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's the elites don't care about us anymore? Right. And, and then, but the Republican Party is still getting traction on cultural issues. Both parties mm, right. have really... Uh, abandon these these people. There, there's a famous moment in 2008 where, where Barack Obama said at a, at a fundraiser, I think it was in San Francisco, he said, you know, you go into these towns in Pennsylvania and, and you know, they were told it was going to get better under the Clinton administration. They were told it was going to get better under Bush. They were told, you know, on and on, but it never did. Um, and for 25 years, they've been looking to God and guns and and, and things like this. And he got in a lot of trouble, but I think it's you know essentially true. They they're still in that situation. Nothing has really improved. And in fact, we now have just absolutely jaw-dropping information, including the fact that white working-class mortality rates are up, and they are dying earlier. There's a reversal of the historic trend of people living longer uh, among uh, white working-class men in the Midwest. It's it's just, it's just. Uh, there's this demoralization that has happened. Uh, the Nobel Prize researcher um, who uh, uh, found this trend, he, he actually said he, didn't, he couldn't account for why this is happening, but he speculated that this is a group of people who had lost the narrative of their lives, which is just so profound. And so when you see somebody like Trump coming along and saying, I'm going to make America great, I'm going to restore everything, it resonates. Right, um, that's an appealing it, message, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, you really kind of look at the deep history here behind these this sort of process. Um, in your book, Capital Moves, RCA's 70-Year Quest for Cheap Labor, um, about this process of, you know, as you say, kind of major manufacturing jobs moving from one place to the next. But before it moved kind of internationally with, you know, NAFTA as kind of the big symbol here, um, it moved within the United States, right? Can you kind of tell right. us a little bit about that process and, you know, uh, when that occurred? Yeah, that that was a, a, a fascinating finding for me because I went out to basically tell the story that, as I thought I understood it, which was, oh, mm-hmm. we had this, you know, post-war settlement, which everything was great, and then it all fell apart when we things began to move to Mexico. Well, I was began. I actually began my research in, at a plant in Bloomington, Indiana, that once employed 
8,000 workers. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you know, yeah, it opened in the 1940s because they, they thought we were a better labor force than in New Jersey. And I was like, well, really? And then Wait, New Jersey, Jersey, right? And, yeah, okay. and then I went to Camden, New Jersey, and, and they had an enormous strike there in the 1930s under, under the New Deal. And when that was settled, uh, management began to move production to what was essentially the Mexico of the 1940s and 50s, which was rural Indiana. And because then, because the workers had unionized there in New Jersey, right? That's correct, right. Okay. Right, not only unionized, but unionized with the United Electrical Workers, which was one of the most radical unions in the United States. Okay. Um, it was actually communist-led at the time. Uh, and then the pattern repeats itself, and they have an experiment in Memphis, Tennessee that doesn't really work. And then finally in the 70s, they, they go to Mexico. And, of course, they go to Mexico long before NAFTA uh, is, is passed. So NAFTA, again, has a lot of symbolic weight, but in terms of of actual corporate strategy, they're already there. Right, yeah, and, um, and that kind of signals that maybe the presidency and even the federal government here don't don't necessarily have that much control over this kind of huge economic process. Would you agree? Well, I think they have a couple a couple of levers. One is, okay. obviously, um, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I'm not disagreeing completely. Um, one is tariffs, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, we did lower tariffs from, you know, Smoot-Hawley levels in the 30s of, you know, enormous tariffs to almost zero. Um, and and so that's one level, lever. Um, but the other, and I think this is a conversation that's never really happened in the United States. It happened a little bit around the battle in Seattle in 99. But that is, what kind of globalization do we want to have, right? Right. So, there's the, 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 are we going to have a social dimension to globalization? It's not just about the movement of goods and services and capital, but it's also about the people, labor rights, environmental standards, all, all this kind of thing. Because and, so and, and it, it seems to me that yeah, these these kind of pro free trade, um, you know, sides here, whoever they may be, Democrats, Republicans, kind of talk about this as as an inevitable process, something that you know we just we can't stop it no matter what. Um, right. But you're kind of implying that, you know, we there there's some ability to maybe shape this. Exactly. And it's not a yes-no binary. I okay. had this, you know, when I was I was in grad school, this is going to date me terribly, I was in grad school when the NAFTA debate was um, underway, and people kept saying, NAFTA, yes or no? I'm like, well, look, here's what we need to do. We need to think about how trade can work for everybody. Right. It's, you know, because no one's going to turn the clock back on globalization. It's just, you know... We're not going to – I think autarky at this point is just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I do think that we could create a social foundation for a more equitable system in which, you know, factories aren't aren't crumbling in Bangladesh and killing, you know, untold numbers of people. Right. Um, uh, it, so under what conditions do we do this? And I think one of the – another symbolic moment, at least for me, is when – China was led into the World Trade Organization um, without any sort of test about labor rights or even demo- uh, democracy more broadly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so. And, you know, in a kind of a related point here, I think, um, you know, here in the United States, uh, you know, every so often this issue of unequal pay between men and women is brought up in the news, um, but it's not really ever kind of explained properly, it seems to me. Um, but but your book here, Capital Moves, kind of found some interesting historical evidence on kind of 
what's maybe created this process or certainly what sustained the process. Um, what did you find here in your research um, on this kind of gender issue? Yeah, uh, that was um, another surprising thing for me was um, the way gender works in this capital mobility situation. What would happen is when they opened a plant uh, in whether it was Bloomington or Memphis or Ciudad Juarez, which are the three of the four sites I I studied, Mm -hmm. they would open with a very simple rote production, just basic like soldering and things like that. And they would hire young women. They'd hire young women, teenage women in Mexico. They'd hire them in the U.S. It was the same thing no matter where they went. Okay. This isn't really associated with, again, with globalization, having young women in the sort of global assembly line. It's been going on a really long time. But then as production would develop, they would begin to uh, bring in men and give men, move men into the higher skilled occupations and things like this. It was very, you know, it was a, very much based on a traditional um, domestic division of labor where women would go out into the workplace. But then they would, when they became of age, they would allegedly, you know, go back to the family and raise kids and whatever. The social so, norms, right? Social kind of right, expectations. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, but then they would recreate the process, move, move again, hire young women, and then, and then, and then, as the plant was there longer, more men would would come along, and they would be paid more, obviously, and their skills would be developed, and um, so it was, it was a very interesting sort of constant resetting of the clock. In, uh, the clock of industrial relations, turning turning back time, but using women. In every case, young women mm-hmm. uh, as the instrument for turning that clock back. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, speaking here of, of unions, and you mentioned earlier that you know after uh, the Camden, New Jersey workers organized, that then then RCA picked up and moved to its next location. Would you say is it a fair charge that unions have been more or less powerless in in the face of this sort of economic transformation change? Or is that an unfair, uh, you know, charge? Well, they, they've certainly failed to meet the challenge. Okay. Um, you know, whether other tactics would have worked, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I think you're right that, that, that you know, they have proved power, proven powerless. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and especially as the, as the Democrats shifted uh, more toward a free trade neoliberal worldview in the 90s, that the unions had very little purchase on on trying to create uh, an alternative. And Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, emblematic by the fact that I look at four sites in that book, four different cities, and there are four different unions. Each site has a different union. So it's really hard to create what's called pattern bargaining. So the UAW is United Auto Workers, for instance, has pattern bargaining where it can set the wage rate for the entire industry across all places and all companies. So GM, right. all car makers here, right in the U.S. Right, right. Labor costs this much, right, in auto. But if you have a fragmented uh, union presence, as you did in the case of RCA, you can't. It's very difficult to create a pattern bargaining and take basically trying to take wages out of competition. Right, which kind of then allowed RCA to kind of reset the clock each time they moved, right? Reset the wages down really low. Um, And so, you know, bringing up NAFTA again here in the 90s, um, would you say a lot of the same kind of economic processes that we've been talking about 
stayed in play as before NAFTA came into effect. Um, that is, you know, the search for this cheap labor, a passive workforce. Um, just now, it was across international boundaries right. instead of state, United States, you know, individual state boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and I, well, I mean, uh, even in the 70s, production was going to Taiwan, it was going to Mexico, it was going to Puerto Rico. Right, okay, good. So, so there were a lot of places it was going. But yeah, it, it becomes accelerated, codified. The official steel, seal of approval happens with NAFTA, and then the World Trade Organization. Uh, and um, yeah, and then it just accelerates, right? Then it becomes the norm. It's not new. It's the way we do business. Uh, the mobility of capital is, is 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 a constant thing. And then then it gets the system of production gets rejiggered into these production chains, right, in which, you know, um, the, the label or the vendor, the, the retailer, uh, it beca- drives the ship, um, and they can get their pro- product made wherever, but the shoes that are at the Nike store or whatever it is, uh, is really driven by the brand and the merchandising. And the production end is just sort of the tail end of things. We can get that done wherever. Mm-hmm, right. Uh, the reversal of the way it used to be where General Motors used to make cars, push them out into the world, and the salesmen sold them. It's it's very different now. It's kind of um, almost, yeah. yeah, slightly reversed in a way. You, I mean, more exactly. complicated than that, but a little bit. Right. You pull those sneakers off the shelf, and a whole series of things click into place electronically where, okay, you know, some sneakers were sold uh in in Columbus, Ohio, and then it's told all the way down out to Vietnam where okay, make another sneaker and it eventually makes its way back to Columbus, Ohio. Right. Um and so these economic shifts we've been discussing, right? Deindustrialization, these free trade deals, um also held really profound political and cultural consequences for the nation that we've really been discussing a little bit already. Um, and you really dissect these in your book, Staying Alive, the 1970s and the Last Days of the Working Class. But surely, I kind of want to ask the you know flip question here, we still certainly have a working class today, or do we? And what do you mean by its last days? Uh, not enough people ask me that question. I, I think it's such a great question. Um, and the title is supposed to force you to ask that question, but the, the, the number of reviewers and Interviewers who have not really attacked that specific question, I think. Uh, oh, that's surprising. Okay, has been troubling to me. Yeah. So here's the here's my answer though. Uh, you're right. There is a working class out there. We could measure it in a variety of metrics, and it's getting worse for them. Uh, wages are stagnant. Uh, precariousness of employment is way up. People are very anxious and concerned. Um, jobs are moving. People are moving to more jobs. Uh, so the, you know, the working class is right there. We could just sort of measure it. But what I mean by the last days of the working class in the 1970s is that it's the last time the working class existed in the public imaginary. Okay. That part of our civic life, that we, that we had a place for them in how we considered political questions. So, so it's like... You can measure a working class and say, yep, there it is. You know, right. that's, By, like, you know, income or something, right? Yeah, right. Whatever. Choose your yeah, non-college, educate, whatever okay. you want to. But unless we're talking about it, unless it's part of who we imagine ourselves to be, it doesn't exist. Yeah, this is really fascinating. Uh, I, I wonder if you might think, you know, agree that, you know, today you hear politicians 
really endlessly talking about how we really need to support the middle class, quote unquote, and that's the phrase. But I always listen for a politician to, to also include the working class, and they don't. Yeah, well, this is, of course, the great, the great myth of America, right? That we're nothing but a middle class. That everyone's society. middle class, right? Right. Right. Yeah, and it's but it is also interesting if you go back and listen or read about uh, how people talked about themselves, presented themselves, the way reporters talked. Uh, they they said the word working class a lot. Right. Okay. Um, if you, if you, in fact if a good example, the the guy on the cover of that book, his name's Dewey Burton, um, and it open, the book opens a little series of anecdotes about him as an auto worker and his politics. He he was on some talk shows and radio shows and things like this, and I went back to listen in, to in the early seventies, right? In the early seventies, right? And everyone's the workers, the working class, the working class. Da, 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 it's all over the place, and and now you don't see it. And even the AFL CIO talked about the middle class, sometimes working families, but people seem to be afraid of this term working class. And if if you look, if, depending on how you, if you want to take a really crude metric, which is essentially non-college educated people who are work for wages rather than salary, mm-hmm. you're talking 50 to 60 percent of the country. So, you know, if you're not looking at just sort of, you know, whether they own television sets, but, you know, how much power they have in the job and what their prospects are for upward mobility, uh, it's, it's a pretty large number of people. Right. Um, and so just before and soon after Hillary Clinton's kind of historic nomination here, uh, just recently, there was a lot of talk around that time about if Bernie Sanders supporters would, in fact, actually vote for Clinton or if they'd go and vote for Donald Trump. And on one level, that sounds completely strange. Um, mm-hmm. But on another, it doesn't it seems to me that there's kind of really you know these multiple factors going on in this really unusual election all of that has really made me recall a great quote from your book staying alive um from 1972 from an unnamed trucker who referring to his potential support for the southern segregationist and populist presidential candidate george wallace who we mentioned earlier the trucker said referring to wallace quote I'm either for him or the communists. I don't care. Just anybody who wouldn't be afraid of the big companies. And right after that, you mentioned how working class whites put, quote, this family will not be bust bumper stickers on their cars. Now, not to necessarily draw a really direct straight comparison between Wallace and Trump or Sanders and, quote unquote, the communists. But is there a fair <laughs> analogy here? Yeah. Um, you know, can you unpack what you see going on there in this kind of 1972 uh, election in this kind of 1970s moment? Yeah, I actually think there's a lot of parallels. Um, you know, I, there's the obvious parallels between Wallace and um, and Trump, and um, and you know, uh, Wallace's uh, campaign slogan was "Stand up for America," and um, Trump's is make America great again. Okay, fascinating. Quite, quite similar. Um, but I, I think the other thing that's, if you want to get down to a more nuts and bolts level of mm-hmm. this, is what you're, you're in both cases you're seeing a political party falling apart. And in in 1972, when Wallace, uh, there's an attempted assass- there's an assassination attempt on his life in Maryland. And at that point, when he had to withdraw from the race, the Democratic Party was evenly 
split in the primary between Humphrey, Hubert Humphrey, the sort of old school stalwart Johnson, you know, kind of great society liberal, McGovern, the kind of lefty uh, social democrat anti-war guy who is, um, uh, you know, uh, making alliances with the civil rights and the student movements and the women's mm-hmm. And then Wallace, who is kind of representing this heartland and southern white working class backlash. And so you have a fragmented party that's lost its narrative, it's lost its mission, it's lost its direction. And out of that, in this case, McGovern is able to, uh, you know, a a different kind of outside candidate, a more Mm -hmm. Sanders candidate, actually, is able to uh, gain control of the party at a time that if the party were had any kind of coherence, he probably wouldn't have. Well, it's the same thing, I think, now, uh, mechanically speaking, that the, the Republican Party, it's lost its narrative. It's lost, it doesn't quite know what it stands for anymore. It can only, you know, sort of pound this uh, anti-status message so long and this obstructionist message so long. And it's kind of run out of gas. And so it, it, it allows uh, a fringe candidate like Trump to sort of rise to the top. And and do you see a similarity here at all between you know you said you do think there's kind of some similarity here between the 70s and and today do you see some kind of similarities in the racial politics going on today with the kind of black lives matter versus quote unquote all lives matter and then that issue in the 70s over you know busing for school desegregation yeah and and um and, and double down on that is the immigration question you know, oh great highly racialized um, which uh, so I, just to go back to our early part of our conversation, we mentioned that immigration was for the most part closed off in 1924. Well, it reopens in '65, slowly. Right. Okay. 70s and 80s, we begin to see by the 80s uh, under Reagan it becomes politicized again, and now of course it's hyper politicized and often racialized. So yeah, it's 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 all of these issues that have been underground are popping back up and 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 really make it hard for a sort of a multicultural working class vote to emerge and i and i think that's the big challenge uh today um but race yeah it it, it's defined politics since reconstruction right i mean Mm -hmm. and and um it i don't think there's you know i think it's it's extremely urgent it's a moral priority of our time but it's not new um, and uh, it, there's still a lot of work to be done. For a while, in the 90s, it looked like maybe Ray, you know, William Julius Wilson wrote, you know, the declining significance of race, and it sort of looked like, okay, maybe economics is all that really matters. Right. But, and uh, maybe if you know everybody had a job, uh, and that that things could could be better. But you know, I'm. Uh, I think now we see, okay, race is sort of its own variable. I mean, when you're seeing police killing um, African-Americans in the streets, um, like, okay, this is, you know, its own thing, and it needs to be dealt with um, irrespective of economics. Now, I think think everybody having, in the post-war period, when the economy was really doing well, working people's expectations were rising, uh, wages were going up. Mm-hmm. Um, that there was more of a chance that people were going to share, and I think that's when you begin to see the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement, because it's it's sort of uh, buoyed by the the rising economic hopes. Now people are very pessimistic. There's much more of a zero sum attitude economically. I think about um, 
about what's going to happen. I'm going to get it or you're going to get it. Right. And, um, so that creates a – at the end of Staying Alive, I say we move from a republic of security to a republic of anxiety. And I, and I really kind of if, – if you're anxious, it's very hard to share with people who are not like you. I think that's a really insightful point. Um, and so to move on to, to the last question um, about Staying Alive as well, and I have really wanted to ask you this, this for a long time. Um, <laughs> and so you focus a lot on popular culture in this, throughout this book, as you know, the title uh, suggests. Um, and so one of my favorites from the era of the 70s and 80s is Bruce Springsteen's song, The River, which is just crushingly depressing. Um, <laughs> but what are some of your favorite examples of pop culture from the period that you found really capture the spirit of the time? Um, and then maybe if, you know, if you're willing, what are, do you see some kind of other similar pop culture um, pieces from our own time that are representative of this kind of time of you know, maybe anxiety, as you put it? Wow. Um, you know, the 70s is so rich in, in popular culture, um, you know, obviously cinema and, and music, and, and it was really a, a fantastic time because it was a time of ferment and, and decline, and the questions of the 60s are bursting onto the scene in the 70s, and um, nobody really knows where we're going, and, and so that's a great artistic And I think moment. like urban problems, too, in particular, urban. really rise to the top. You know, I'm thinking of like, like Taxi Driver and things yeah, like that. Yeah, all the Scorsese stuff, all the, you know, yeah, it's all... That's all about urban decline, and and so yeah. So what are my favorites? Well, obviously, I'm, I I have for a long time been an unreconstructable uh, Bruce Springsteen fan. Um, so the river was actually the first tour I saw. Oh, wonderful! Great uh, of uh, uh, Bruce, and then I took my son actually to uh, the the River Revival tour. Oh, that's great! Yeah, that was fun. But I digress. Um, <laughs> well, it sounds like that you know that uh, that tour there is leading your of your favorites here. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. This this song, "The River," in particular, always felt like something I was personally escaping from my own mm-hmm. background. But you know what? I I think cinematographically overlooked is "Dog Day Afternoon." Absolutely love everything about that movie. And you know, Pacino is is brilliant and vulnerable in a way he isn't later. You know, he becomes kind of a blathering loudmouth. But there, he's just such a great character, and it's all based <laughs> on an actual bank robbery. Like almost scripted, almost pulled right out of the out of the actual events that happened, and just in, in an absurd set of circumstances, with you know these ridiculous robbery where these guys, you know, he's trying to finance a sex change operation for his male wife while his female wife is home. It, it's just, you know, it's just such a '70s kind of story. Everything is is a ball of confusion, right? And and I, I, I I'm particularly fond of that. I also think Saturday Night Fever is just a great film. I, you know, I really like that movie. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's solid. It definitely, uh, you know, stands today still, I think. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and, and I think what's interesting about a lot of those things is, is there's sort of this mixing in the 70s cinema, this hope and despair. It, almost everything has this kind of, you know, are we going to get out of this place or are we going to be stuck here? And, uh, and that's the defining question of the seventies, I think for a lot of people. And, uh, and now, you know, is, is that a similar question for today? You know, I'm, I'm I, kind of thinking when you said that kind of hope and despair, it, it makes the thing that I kind of point to for today is, is, you know, the wire, the series yeah. uh, from HBO, um, is kind of representative and, and, you know, is maybe heavier on the despair, but certainly offers some of those moments of hope as well. Yeah. I, I I love the wire. 
I think The Wire is fantastic, and I'm a big fan of, of David Simon's work um, in general. And I, the the interesting thing about The Wire, and I, well, I think it has a lot of 70s aesthetics, actually. Okay, you know, fascinating. You know, it, I think it, it it is sort of, there, there are kind of Scorsese elements of that updated. But you, the problem in terms of hope for The Wire is you sort of have this stalemate where the cops are corrupt, the state's corrupt, the newspapers are corrupt, the union's are trying to do the right thing, but but they're corrupt for the wrong reason. You know, they're, they're corrupt for the right mm-hmm. reason, uh, and the bad guys are corrupt. So it's all these sort of, like, corrupt institutions facing off against each other. But you have these moments of humanity in each group that are just right. um, really, um, really quite lovely, right? I mean, when somebody like Omar, who just comes across as this savage guy at first, becomes just this deeply humane person uh it's it it just can't be beat it's good stuff the thing that worries me about pop culture today is just this sort of apocalyptic stuff you know it's like the end right. of the world you know I, I, there's this or the superhero stuff which is kind of a constant but it it it, it always looks for this you know outside force that's somehow going to save something or you know i think we we don't really have a narrative of how we deal with this. It is a, it's mostly fatalistic, I think. We're mm-hmm. here, we're stuck, this is what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, cast in the worst terms possible, really. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. Right. Well, that's that's a fun point to end on, I think, mm-hmm. so So all our listeners have their homework set out. Go, go find Dog Day <laughs> Afternoon and go mm-hmm. watch The Wire if you haven't seen those two already. Um, Jefferson Cowie, thank you so much for appearing on History Talk. I had a great time. Thanks, Patrick. Jefferson Cowie is the James G. Stallman Chair in the Department of History at Vanderbilt University. He is the author most recently of the book, The Great Exception, The New Deal and the Limits of American Politics, from Princeton University Press. He has also authored the books Capital Moves, RCA's 70-Year Quest for Cheap Labor, and Staying Alive, the 1970s and the Last Days of the Working Class. And he has co-edited the volume Beyond the Ruins, The Meanings of Deindustrialization. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Koteheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Payandi and Mark Sikolsky. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcast and more at origins.osu.edu on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.